You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi, family. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, I will throw out a little ditty about Thursday night service. Um, One of the things that we discovered is we started the Thursday night service at 7 o'clock thinking that's a good time for evening activities to start. But we actually wanted to serve our families in our church, in our church family. And, and what we found was people that have, especially younger kids, it gets out a little bit after eight, and that puts them in a tough spot for bedtime for their kids. And so we wanted to bump it up a half an hour to give that window a little more cush there. And, and I just got to tell you, like right now, right now, you could be fast asleep and not even feeling guilty about it because you already went to church on Thursday night. Like, I love that idea. If I wasn't, if I didn't have to be in church on Sunday, Thursday night would be my service um, because that's where I would go. Um, that you have your whole weekend to yourself. So, anyway, I'll throw that out to you. You're welcome to come there, and it's, it's great. And we're going to have dinner there as well uh, starting in January. It'll be a lot of fun. We are in week three of Advent, and we're going to follow a similar pattern to what we did last week. We're going to read the story, and we're going to read the same story that we did last week because this week we're talking about the angels. Last week we talked about the shepherds, and they're this part of the same story, the same section of the, of the story. And so we're going to read that again, but we're going to focus on the angels instead of the shepherds. We're going to leave the story, and we're going to talk about our temple metaphor that we've been following and then we're going to tie it back together, hopefully, at the end, somewhere around 1 or 2 o'clock. You guys ready to go to work? <laughs> we'll tie it down, maybe. Let's read Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, let's just run this out. Beit, say Beit, Lachem. Not Lachaim, not that. Lachaim is like, cheers. Lachem, it means bread. So what does Beit Lachem mean? House of bread. It's interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. It's all those little things that God does, right? It's kind of cool. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And that's a great translation of that passage. We'll talk about it more next week. But the Greek word there is kataluma. It does not mean an inn like a Motel 6. And the problem isn't that there's a no vacancy sign. There are no inns in Bethlehem. It's a, it's a town of about 300 people in the time of Jesus. So the question, this is his family's guest room. So the question is, why are they not welcome there? Why, why is there no room for them there? Anyway, next week. It's a little bait for next week. Did you see what I did there? You have to show up. Dang it. I was going to go to Thursday night. Good news. Thursday night be the same message. And you know how... <laughs> second service, you get all the good stuff. You know how 
um, there's always those, that's a sermon, another sermon for another day. You know how you get those? Thursday night doesn't get any of those. They, it's like you get Thursday night bonus content. Thursday night. I'm just saying. Do with that as you will. There were shepherds living on the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Who's supposed to be, uh, receive great joy from this gospel? Even the people you don't like. Even the people that are different than you. Those people, even those people, are supposed to receive joy from this gospel. This is a good news of great joy for everybody. I don't want to get all technical on you. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, this phrase that's translated to those, it says what it would literally say is peace for all of mankind on whom his favor rests. So the idea of this, because if you read it and you're not careful, it can look like God's favor rests on some and not on others, right? But how is that good news for all people? The good news is that God's favor rests on all of us. Like, he's not mad at you. Good news. God's not disappointed in you. By the way, he can't be disappointed in you. I don't know if you know that. Um, disappointment always comes from unmet expectations. I have an expectation of you that you didn't meet. What expectation does God have of you that you're not going to meet? You're going to be like, but I really blew it. He's going to be like, I know. I, I was there. I knew you would do it before you did it. Like before you were born, I knew what your life would look like. So how, what, what expectation does he have of you that you're not going to meet? How can you disappoint God? You're like, but I really, and he's like, I know. Like I, before I created the world, he knows everything. He's really smart. God, you should totally follow him. You can't disappoint him. You can't. And so God's favor isn't for some people and not for others. His favor is for all mankind. That's, a, that's good news. That gives us peace. When the angels had left them and gone into, the, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So, here's our story. The shepherds are out in the field. The angels come, and they say, we have a gospel. In the days of Caesar Augustus, who also had just sent out a gospel, by the way, that said he was the prince of peace, that he was the savior of the world, and that he would rule and bring peace on earth and remission of sins. That was the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Do you have any problems with what that said? Because <laughs> we look at that and go, what, wait, what, no. Yes, that is what Augustus was saying about himself. 
So this good news that the angels bring to the, to the shepherds, like first of all, the problem with the gospel of Augustus is that it doesn't apply for people that are the shepherds. It doesn't apply for people that are in that low of standing. But secondly, Augustus brought peace through dominance. The savior of the world brings peace through an invitation to a proper way of understanding how creation is supposed to function. And so he meets us in a manger. Now I want to I look at this diagram of the temple that we've been going through. Here we go. Um, we started at week one with these steps out here. Let's, uh, let's yeah, throw that up in the outer court here. Um, beyond that, out, that's the whole temple mount. Where all those pillars are in the background, that's Solomon's colonnade. It's mentioned a lot in scripture. Um, that, that's Solomon's colonnade. So that's there. This inner court here, this, uh, this space, this is where the steps are, the teaching steps. This is where the rabbis would sit and teach. Any Jew, man, woman, or child of good standing could come there and hear them teach. This is also where they would take collections for offerings and tithes. Um, this is where Jesus is at 12 years old when his, when his parents leave him in Jerusalem for three days by himself. Like, what an awesome job parenting, right? The son of God. They're parenting God's son. And it's like, you had one job. They left him there for days. Uh, they find him here at these steps talking to the rabbis and asking them questions, and everyone marvels at his wisdom. This is also where he sits when he's talking with his guys about the widow who comes and gives what they call the widow's mite, right? She comes and puts in the, the two small copper coins, and he says, this woman has given it more than everybody else. That would have happened right here, okay, at these steps. Now, what we talked about in week one is that prophecy teaches us that the promises of God are secure. And because of that, we can have hope. The next week, week two, let's go to the next photo. We talked about the altar, and the altar is a place of confession. And this process of as we draw closer to the presence of God, we don't just run flippantly. I love that we can run boldly into the presence of God, but we cannot run flippantly into the presence of God. We need to be prepared. Like we're going into the presence of the creator of the universe. That ought to stir you for a minute. So we start with teaching. Then we go to this place of confession. And we often confuse in the modern church confession and repentance. And so when we say that we want to say that we're sorry for something, then we say, well, you need to repent. That's not repentance. That's confession. That's, here's what I did, and I'm sorry. What kind of God we meet at confession says a lot about how we repent. Repentance is this idea that once we've confessed our sin, we find a God who is faithful to forgive us. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches us. In fact, um, Romans 2, he says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the demands of God, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That passage is in your notes. It's the kindness of God. We, when we confess, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So we're gonna have to understand what repentance is, but then we go to the porch, which is beyond that, and it seems like sort of an insignificant piece 
to the whole scheme of things. Why is this there? These stairs that are there. Why is this there? Why is that such an important part of the process? Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, but I want to talk first about what is repentance. So we're going to focus. Let's go back to the diagram. One more photo. And go. There it is, this green part. That's what we're going to focus on. Now, next week, we're going to go into the holy place and we're going to set ourselves apart for the mission, but we want to talk about getting ready for the mission today. And then beyond that, Christmas Eve... We get to meet Jesus, God, with us. It's pretty cool where he creates the holy place for us. It's not pretty, but it's awesome. That's another sermon for another day, which actually is another day. It's Christmas Eve. That's what we'll talk about on Christmas Eve. So I want to talk about this idea of repentance. For many of us, we've been taught that repentance is to turn away from sin, and it's not wrong but it misses the heart of what repentance is all about. The idea of the Greek word is that if I'm walking towards this wall, if I repent, then I turn 180 degrees and walk away the other direction, right? So that's what repentance has been taught to us. The idea of repentance from the Jewish perspective is different. It's not about what we turn away from. It's about what we turn toward. I was raised in a world where um, the way that people parented their children was that they just corrected bad behavior. That's how I was raised. And so it, it, was a, it was a don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Oh, that thing is wrong. That thing is wrong that you did. That thing is wrong that you did. And so people were constantly in the process of taking things away from their kids, but it was rare to find parents that understood how important it is to actually show them what they were supposed to then do. So there was a whole lot of taking stuff away, and, and, but never really giving them a sense of what they were supposed to actually do. So I was, I was raised like Christianity is not, was not about being right, it was about being unwrong. The difference is, right is God's call for our life, but I never got to learn to understand what that was. What I learned was, I wanted to be unwrong. Which isn't necessarily right, it's just you don't know that I'm wrong. Does that make sense? Repentance is about returning to the right path. And in a Jewish world, this is very important. That for them, when they ask you, how are you doing? When we say, how are you doing? What we're talking about is our state of being. Like, we're, how's your emotional state? How are your feelings? How are your thoughts? How are you doing? Right? This is what we're concerned about. For them, they don't care about any of that stuff. <laughs> They'll say this, how's your walk? How are you walking? That's what they'll specifically ask. It's still to this day in a Jewish context. How are you walking? Which is why Paul says in the New Testament, anyone who claims to be in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. But it's translated, must live as Jesus lived. Same idea, but for them, the emphasis is on the path that we're walking, not how I feel about it. So repentance is us returning back to the path. So we've confessed and we've admitted that it was wrong and we meet a God that inspires us to walk the path. What path? That's what we want to talk about. Let's go back and take a look at those stairs. It's a weird, it's a weird thing and I want, to, I want to throw up a verse here. Let's throw up the verse from, from 2 Chronicles. Chronicles is an interesting couple of books. Um, Chronicles is uh, written 
much later, many years after the events actually took place. First and Second Kings is essentially the same set of stories written at the time that they were happening. First and Second Chronicles is written a lot later. And so the chronicler, whoever, <laughs> the chronicler, whoever that is, and so have you guys remember the movie Mystery Men with Ben Stiller? It's, one of, it's a great movie. Um, I've got to be careful saying that because somebody would be like, did you know what's in that movie? Um, I think it's a good movie. <laughs> I remember it being really funny, but they had this thing where they interviewed a bunch of people who were superheroes, like the chronicler. It sounds like something. I write down all the truth. Uh, but the chronicler, it's funny in my mind. I don't... <laughs> the chronicler is looking back on all of these things that happened lots of years later and reflecting on what was really the problem. And so what's interesting is in First and Second Kings, you have all the story of the wives and the sex and the Bathsheba and the, the affairs and the, all of that, like all the fleshly jargon. Lots and lots of years later, as they reflect back on it, what we realize is that there was a lot of deeper issues going on. It was about power and control and trusting the Lord. And there was all these other issues that were happening. But the chronicler is reflecting back on this time, and this is actually in the middle of, a, of another completely different story, and there's this interjected thought here, but it's actually really important because it's going to tie into what we've been talking about, okay? Second Chronicles says, the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon brought gold from Ophir and also brought algam wood and precious stones. And the king used the algam wood to make steps for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace. So they use the algam wood to make steps for the temple of the Lord. What part of the temple are we talking about today? The steps to the temple of the Lord, okay? So you're like, why are we reading this? Well, that's why. Uh, and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians, nothing like them had ever been seen in Judah. Okay, now here's the thing about Hebrew as a language. It, and this is important. There are not very many written words. And so the words take on multiple meanings. And in a, in a language that is built around not very many words, the word usage here is really important. There are actually several words that could be used to translate stairs. Why did the writer pick this one? There's a rule in Jewish interpretation, um, or how the, the people who wrote the Bible, how they interpret the Bible, called the principle of first mention. Let me give you an idea of how this works. Okay, so in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then there came a light to the world, okay? So there's all these pieces. There's God, and in the beginning, and light. Where do we see all three of these ideas show up for the first time? Genesis 1, right? So John, in his gospel, is repainting creation. Why? Because Jesus came to tell us there's new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one, and everyone everywhere is invited to be a part of it, right? That's why Mary, at the end, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene mistakes him for a gardener. What? That's weird, unless we understand that we're back in the garden. Does that make sense? This is how they think. And this is important for us to know because this is how the chronicler thinks. So this word that's used for stairs, it's the word makila, and the root word is the word kalal. Say kalal. Kalal. 
Mekila is a derivation of that. Kalal is the root word. And so in, if you want to figure out why does he pick this word? Well, then we need to go back and maybe consider the principle of first mention. Now, the rabbis talk a lot about this with the temple, not with the tabernacle, because the tabernacle was a mobile tent. It, it didn't have stairs. But when Solomon built the temple, they used it as a metaphor of Jacob's life. Okay? So you might consider the possibility that the reason that this story is told is because it's a mirror image back to Jacob. Hang with me. I know this. You're like, where is he going with this? Hang with me. Let's read Genesis. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, and when he reached a certain place, if you're taking notes, you should probably underline this. The, the Hebrew here literally is when he reached Nowhere's nowhere. This, this place is nowhere looks at this place and goes, man, you are really out of the way here. <laughs> this, is, this is nowhere's nowhere. When he reached nowhere's nowhere, this is, this is in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by a big glass of nowhere. Like, pick, how ran, pick up how random this is, Okay. He stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep because that would be comfortable. He had a dream in which he saw a, a, he saw a stairway. Guess what the root word is? Kalal. Resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And we talked a little bit about Jacob last week with Psalm 32 and this whole idea of confession and how it lifts us, uh, it helps us to be able to function better. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I, and this isn't even translated in the English, the I is repeated there, and I, I was not aware of it. Why does he need to say that twice? It's another sermon for another day. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. What's the temple called? This is the gate of heaven. Where do we see heaven show up in his mind? The gate of heaven is where? In the house of God, which is entered by what? Staircase. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Through this, though the city used to be called Luz or Luz or Lutz or however you want to say it. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. 
And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, let me, let me say this quickly. Part of the revelation here for Jacob is that in his time period, gods were always located. They were in that temple or there was the God of that river or that tree or what. Gods were always located. He's in nowhere's nowhere and God meets him there. Which is, have you ever had a moment in your life where you're just randomly moving through life and you say to yourself, wow, all of a sudden God just showed up, right? Maybe the problem isn't God showing up. Maybe the problem is us waking up to the fact that God is fully present everywhere all the time and we're too concerned with ourselves to see it. Maybe part of what repentance is, is this idea that we're reminded that God is at work and our best bet is to partner with him in our journey rather than trying to make it on our own. Maybe part of the good news of great joy for all people is the understanding that freedom and peace reside in walking with the Lord, not trying to push against him. What happens is Jacob comes to this vision of the stairway and all of a sudden God comes to him and reveals to him his future. Let me show you what your destiny is, Jacob. I'm the God of your father Abraham and your father Isaac. I am the God that gave them all this stuff and because that is who I am, I'm gonna use you to bless the whole world and you and your offspring will be a blessing for everybody. Jacob, at the stairway, gets his life destiny. And at the heart of repentance is a commitment from me to walk out what God calls my destiny. What's my purpose? What's my meaning? Why am I here in this life? What's my mission? Where am I going? What am I doing? God, do you even see me? At repentance, I say, yes, I will walk the path. And none of that stuff that was back there, none of that stuff will get in the way. My job is to take forward a mission that says to people, we serve a God whose favor rests on all the people. And it's God's kindness that leads us there. See, the problem is that for many of us at the moment of confession, we come to confess, but we also walk out just as ashamed. Like, you can't encounter a God who meets us at the altar and walk away unchanged. We're gonna... We're gonna move towards the Lord's table, and, and let me set that up. If you're passing that out, go ahead and grab communion and start passing that out. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is everybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end. We'll take them all together. I want to tie this all together while they're passing it out. And you have implications in your notes, and they're good ones. Um, you should read them. I helped come up with them. I did not come up with them on my own. That's why I can stand in confidence that they're actually worth something. Because 
There's a lot of other people that poured into those. But rather than reading those implications today, what I want to do is tell you a story that Jesus told. And I want to I tie this idea of good news of great joy for all people. God's favor rests on everybody. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18. Thank you. Here's the story that he tells. There was a king that decided he wanted to settle accounts. And so he brought in a man that owed him a lot of money. The a lot of money in today's world would be about $6 billion. It's a lot of money. Now, there's all kinds of questions about that. Number one, how in the world did he go into debt that far? How is that okay? This is how economies crash, or rumor has it. Those of us that survived 2007, 8, and 9, you remember? When people loan money to people who can't pay it back, that's a problem. So uh, the guy goes into debt about $6 billion, and the king brings him in and says, I'm calling your debt. You need to pay it back. And the guy says to him, please be patient with me. I'll pay it back. No. No, he won't. He is never going to be able to pay that debt back. That is an insurmountable debt for him to be able to pay back. And so the king says, listen, you, I'll tell you what, I know you can't pay it back, so I'm just going to forgive the debt. We're good. The guy's super grateful, right? Like, that's amazing that the king would do this to him. And so he leaves, and he sees a guy that owes him what in today's money would be about $8,000. It's a chunk of change. It's not $6 billion. Like, we don't even have a frame of reference for billion with a B. B billion dollars. And the guy, and he says to the guy, pay me back my money. And the guy says, listen, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. The other guy says, no, no, you will pay it back. And so I'm going to throw you in prison until you can pay the money back. Which, what's the problem with that? How in the world is he ever going to make the money to pay it back? The king finds out about it. Brings the first guy back in. And here's what he says. This is an interesting choice of words. You wicked, lazy servant. It's interesting to me. The kind of God that we believe we meet at confession, at the altar, says so much about how we commit to walk the path through repentance. Consider the implications in the world that we live in today. And I, I'm going to get political for just a second, which I don't normally do, but I think this is, it's complex, I get it, but this is important for us to think about. There are thousands of people at the border right now begging for our help. And I, I get that it's a complex issue. I get it. I get it. But we ought to at least consider what are the implications of 
for all of mankind on whom his favor rests. How do we put that on display? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to answer that question because that's where everybody gets angry. But do we fight to try to figure that out or do we go, no, they're not like us. They're not one of us. That just feels really un-Jesus-y to me. What do we do with that? What do we do with our crazy family members that we're going to hang out with next week? God's favor rests on them too. What do we do with our coworkers? What do we do with our estranged friends and relatives that we don't want to talk to because they hurt our feeler? What do we do with them? What do we do? Do we engage in a mission that takes forward the truth that God's good news is to bring peace for all people? Or do we start drawing lines of it's for all the people but you? It's for all the people but not this person. Even Jesus doesn't love this person. Once we start drawing those circles around people, very quickly we get out of control and we miss the gospel entirely. And that's really scary. I think that what we're gonna have to come to terms with is that, and and again, one of the reasons why we take communion every week is it's this callback to say, in order to be good at walking the path that God has called us to walk, we're going to have to be willing to lay our life down. And those moments where we, you hurt me and you deserve payback. Is that the God that we met at the altar? Is, is that the God that we met at confession? You can't be in the presence of the king and then walk out unchanged. You can't. This is our call to the kind of life that it will take to take forward good news that God's favor rests on all people. It's a reminder that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this is is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace. Thank you for the compassion that you show us through confession and that your desire isn't to make us pay, it's to make us whole. And so your invitation is that we're good with you. We just need to walk the path. Lord, as we consider what repentance looks like, help us to have the courage to not only walk the path for ourselves, but to inspire others to walk it, not to show them every place that they don't. We love you in your name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. 
Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.